Well, good morning. <laughs> I'm Pastor Colton, if I haven't met you. Delighted to get to share the word with you today. Now, in 2018, a boy in Paris was seen dangling from his balcony, four years old. And an immigrant from Mali scaled the building he was in and rescued him. From, rescued him from falling. It was amazing. You can see it on YouTube. He sprang into action. But the notable absence was his dad. His dad had left the four-year-old at home, gone and ran an errand, and then decided to play Pokemon Go. He left his four-year-old at home. Authorities charged the dad with failure to meet parental obligations. While his little boy was in danger, his dad was off living life in a virtual world, oblivious to his real world. He didn't show up when he needed to. He wasn't ready and he wasn't living according to his real calling in life. This other man showed up and he was a hero. One was living in the real world, ready to act. The other was living in a virtual world on his phone, enjoying a dopamine hit, you know, a temporary reward of pleasure from our brain's reward center. And today in God's word, through Peter, we're encouraged to live in reality, the reality of the will of God for our lives and to show up in real life. So let's pray uh, before we open God's word. God, you call us to real life. Help us to see what your word says and to live in it by the power of the Holy Spirit because we need you, God, to, to work in our hearts to show us how deep you love us and for us to help us, God, to love out of that, we pray. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles... You can turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're starting in verse 1 and going through verse 11 today. And here's what verse 1 says. Let's start there. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in his body, in the body, is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their lives, earthly lives, sorry, for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter starts, therefore, and anytime you see a therefore, we want to know what the therefore is there for. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body. So therefore should lead us to look back to what came before this verse. So looking back into chapter 3, Peter wrote, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so he might bring us to God, being put to death but made alive in the Spirit. And he goes on, And he was resurrected. And has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. And then it goes into our text. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh. So the thoughts preceding this section tell us something. They're describing the reality of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. That he suffered and died. 
but he was made alive in the spirit. And then he's resurrected and he rules over everything. And so therefore, it tells us there's implications for that. If that's true, if it's true that Jesus died, that Jesus died to rescue you by taking your sin upon him, so all of our wrongs are paid for, our debt of wrong is paid, then there are implications for our lives. And we're called really to get to the, with the program of real life. Not our own program, but God's program. And that's what Peter says in this passage. As a result... They, meaning Christians who are obedient to Christ, do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. See, the will of God is a vision of ultimate reality that we either accept or reject. We either live into it or we functionally deny it. But it's real. Whose will will we live for? And Peter speaks of those who don't acknowledge God, who live really for and in a fog of debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And Peter shows how that contrasts and conflicts with those who, who see that they owe their existence not to an impersonal force, force but to an, a personal who. One who created them and loves them. And who's coming to judge the world. And who has, as we will see, a will, a purpose and design for them. That design doesn't come from inside of them, but is bestowed and gifted to them by the one whose image, in whose image they were created. So that's the reality that Christians live in. The Christian's new reality. And it has consequences. It has implications. It has a call. So let's jump back into our text. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Let's start with that first bit. Arm yourselves with the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Now, what does that mean? Peter is referring to Jesus' attitude while he suffered. So that's one of the contexts here, his attitude that he had while he suffered. And he calls us to ready ourselves, to arm ourselves. That really means get ready, take it up. It's a different kind of taking up arms, though. Take up the attitude that Jesus had when he suffered. That word translated attitude is actually used quite a bit in the New Testament. It means a pattern of thinking, acting, and feeling. Peter had already laid out what this looks like in his letter. We're armed, we're ready with a commitment to live in a way so that outsiders can see the grace of God. There's a posture of humility there. We're trusting in the one who judges justly. We're armed with a living hope and a knowledge that God will vindicate in the end. He'll vindicate us, even when we're wronged. And so we're armed with a posture of gentleness and the fear of God above all else. Jesus had that pattern of thinking, acting, and feeling as he suffered. And we're called to have that too. So Peter brings up that the result of this attitude is that we don't live the rest of our earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, when I think of following the will of God in the midst of suffering, my mind drifts to Jesus when he was in Gethsemane. He's about to die a horrible death on our behalf. And as a man, he didn't want to die. But his attitude, 
His posture, his pattern of living came out when he was face to face with his suffering. Here's what he said. He prayed this. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Same pattern of thinking that says, not my will, but yours be done, is to be ours. We are to be ready for whatever life has for us, suffering or service to others, with your will, God, your will be done. See, the new reality for the believer prioritizes that over living in selfishness. And that part of verse 1, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin, that can be a tricky passage. Uh, None of us this side of eternity can really ever say, I'm done with sin. So what could this mean? This may refer to believers dealing away with sin because by suffering, they face a choice. Either take the path of of least resistance by going along with the values, norms, and practices that are seen as acceptable to society, or obey God and suffer the consequences of criticism and condemnation by unbelieving friends. Another possibility is that he who suffers only refers to Jesus here because he's the only one who's never sinned. But I think the overall context suggests really that Peter is speaking to us, to the believers here. But we know this side of eternity, we're not going to be sinless. And so Peter seems to be getting at the refining work of suffering that leaves a distaste for sin and a desire for obedience. Sometimes when we see clearly how sin hurts humanity, even if it's just sin's consequences, we can get a righteous anger that wants us to make war against it. Maybe it's you see someone hurting and you want to care for them. You want to reach into their lives. Maybe it's you want justice for those in Ukraine. Maybe you just witness a loved one suffer and it causes you to reevaluate and reject sinful ways altogether with more fervor. I know when I watched my dad suffer and die, it just made me, it strengthened my resolve to want to live for God and his ways totally against Satan and his. Peter goes on. Actually, sorry. Obedience really is costly, though. That's the thing. Because it does clash with the culture, a culture that's not concerned with obeying Jesus and maligns those who do. When you say, I'm going to live my life for your will be done, God, that clashes with the culture of my will be done for there is no God. Ultimate reality, the world says, is not about a God who says who, who says what's right and made us, but about living your best life now, often looking to satisfy our instincts. And so Peter goes on about what those instincts are. Here's what he says. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, And they heap abuse on you. Now, Peter here is not implying you've already met your sin quota in life. He says you spent enough time. What he's saying is it's time to get on living obediently. It's time to get on living in reality. Peter's readers like us today are living in a world where people are living for their own gratification. And that's seen as the ultimate reality. What life is worth living for. Chasing something to feel good however temporary it might be. Let me just give you an idea. 
here of some of the ways that this plays out in our world. Uh, author Deirdre Barrett, uh, writing about what's called supernormal stimuli. So getting a lot of stimuli that's easy to access, writes this. Supernormal stimuli are a driving force in many of today's problems, including obesity, addiction to television and video games, and war. People sit alone in front of a plastic box streaming Friends instead of going out with their real buddies. They tend Farmville crops while shirking their real duties. Men have sex with two-dimensional screen images when a willing partner may be in the next room. Or perhaps as we saw earlier, playing Pokemon Go while their kid dangles from a balcony, unaware of reality. There really is nothing new under the sun, though. But it does come to us sometimes in different packages. Brant Hansen comments on this. He says, few people would say this is really how they want to live, but this is where we are. Real life, with its real risks and slower rhythms, struggles to compete with the short-term payoff we can get from pixels. This is at least a modern-day picture of what is happening, what's at our fingertips on our phones and devices and different things. And here's the thing. We may be able to say, well, I don't live in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. But the reality is that many in this room are given to living in a world where the fake, the dopamine hit, is pursued more than relishing the real and living into our callings as image bearers of God. We spend too much time on our phones and screens, often at the expense of being involved in each other's lives or pursuing a cause that reaches into our hurting world. We tend to run on an excess of stimuli that makes real life dull and the virtual world more appealing. And Hansen comments more on this. He says, reducing our lives to meaningless is the goal of our spiritual enemy. God loads meaning into the world and the enemy wants to deconstruct it. We are addicted to the dopamine hit we can get from supernormal stimuli, but here's the reason it's an unending treadmill. The dopamine never gives us what we're really looking for. It's an endless loop. And Frederick Buechner says, lust is the craving for salt of a man who is dying of thirst. So we so often, even as Christians, can live this dopamine-driven life, but God is calling us to live with a different vision for life, a larger vision, driven not by gratifying our desires, but a vision of reality, of who God is. And, be, and to be people who engage that reality and resist its distortion, even when it's costly, even when it costs us something. To be people who will solve real-world problems and protect and care for real-world people. And so one of the questions for us is, where do we live most? Functionally, where is our time given? the real world or the virtual? Is, are we pursuing God's kingdom or our own comforts, ultimately? Peter goes on, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. So Peter's making a big point here. He's making the point that despite what these pagans live for and how they treat Christians now who are suffering, there will be a reckoning 
there will be a reckoning because Jesus is the ruler and judge of all, and he's coming back. So to those who are being persecuted, they can take hope in knowing that those who malign and mistreat them for living for Jesus, they'll come face to face with that reality one day. And this is what I believe verse 6 is saying. It's saying to those who gave up their old way of life and followed God, that they're now alive with God. And even though they were put to death and judged by these human standards and died maybe at the hands of persecutors, they are now with God. And they aren't uh, looking back and saying, gee, I wish I gratified all my desires. Peter says that those who heard the gospel and have died have seen what they're hoping for. And they're alive with God now. See, we're all going to come face to face with that reality. Everyone is. And Peter wants us to see that. The fact that, we, that that's going to happen, that we're going to have to give an account, that should, as John Stott said, that should really be a wholesome stimulus to faithfulness. See, people who are persecuted can find a special comfort in that. But it's a call for us, whether we're persecuted or not, to a new way of living. And so Peter's going to lay that out for us. He goes on, starting in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. The end is near. It's interesting that most of the time you hear that phrase, you probably think of someone walking around with a sign that says the end is near uh, with a crazed look on them. But here's the ironic part of this verse. Right after this, look at what Peter writes. The end of all things is near, therefore, so in light of that, be alert and of sober mind. Another way to translate that is to be in your right mind, to be sane. So it shouldn't cause us to lose our heads, but to be clear-headed. It shouldn't cause us to set dates about when the end comes, but to be ready. It shouldn't cause us to withdraw from society or one another, but to engage one another and our world with the hope of the gospel. So believing it that the end is near is not crazy. In fact, the text really tells us twice that to live as though the end of all things is near is sane and to live like there won't be a reckoning, that's crazy. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. So structure your life, not around being the master of your own will, but to live for the will of God. Jesus spoke of this time and time again of how he was going to return to judge the living and the dead, and how that's meant to spur us on to live faithfully for the will of God, for what he calls us to. But you might ask this, didn't Peter write this close to 2,000 years ago? So is the end really near? Yes. But let's look at this. So whenever Jesus talks about his second coming, which actually someone said is like 20% of what he speaks about in the Bible. 20%. Here's some of the ways he speaks of it. So here's a verse from Luke. Here's what he says. But watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, that deals directly with our passage. Matthew 24. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
And then in Matthew 25, Jesus gives us this parable. It's this parable of ten virgins who had lamps, and they had gone out to meet the bridegroom. They had lamps, and five were wise and five were foolish. Now, the wise ones took oil in their jars to keep their lamps burning. And the bridegroom, it says, took a long time to come. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out that the bridegroom was coming and they were to go and meet him. The foolish ones were without oil and they actually had to go and buy oil to light their lamps for themselves to keep them burning. But while the foolish ones were gone, the bridegroom came. And because they weren't ready, they missed it. Only the ones who were ready went with him. And it's kind of referring to Jesus and us waiting for him to return. And Jesus ends the parable with, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. I always find it helpful that it says the bridegroom took a long time to come, because it feels like that. It's been a long time since these words were written, and we're still waiting for the return of Jesus. But he's still coming soon. That doesn't cease to be true. And in the drama of redemption, of God's plan to redeem the earth, we're really waiting for the final act of God. So we're not waiting for God to provide a Savior and Messiah anymore. We aren't being sent prophets to give us new scriptures and words that will tell us what to look for when the Messiah comes. We've got all that. The Messiah has come, and he's coming again. So now we live in light of the gospel and the ending that is to come. Like, what a time to be alive. When you think about it, it's going to happen any day now. And we have God's Holy Spirit speaking to us through his word, saying, be ready. To not be ready is crazy. And that has implications for how we live. One theologian kind of puts it in this way, in contrast to Karl Marx, who said that heaven is the opiate of the people. Here's what he says. He says, contra Marx, it turns out that heaven is not the opiate of the people, lulling them into indifference to present injustices, but a potent stimulant to work for the good of others, denying oneself and in the process communicating God's goodness and displaying God's coming kingdom. Because the end is near. The reckoning is coming. And in a very real way, all of us face the possibility of death every single day. To just rest on our laurels and glide through life without acknowledging what God has called us to is crazy. Knowing that the end is near should lead us away from confusion and the drunken stupor of debauchery, lust, orgies, carousing. And it should give way to sober thinking, caring love, and prayer. We're awake and alert. We're called to be awake and alert to the spiritual and physical, emotional plights of others. And to show up, armed with the good news of Jesus and his attitude of self-emptying love in a hurting world. To show up in real life and work for the good of others, using our gifts by the power of the Holy Spirit to live according to the will of God. So let's take a look at what Peter says about living according to the will of God in light of the fact that Jesus could come back at any time. So verse 8, the first thing he talks about is that we're called to love and forgive. Verse 8 says this, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Throughout his letter, Peter has talked about how our brotherly love will give evidence to the unbelieving world of the reality of Jesus Christ. And here he adds the word deeply. Love one another deeply. Now, the word deeply can also mean constant. 
And it usually describes something that's being stretched or extended. So you and I are to be constant in our love. Not sporadic, but have love that can be stretched. If we show up in the lives of others and are constant in our love, it will be stretched. We will have to forgive. Now, alone in our homes, we may think, I'm not hurting anyone and nobody is hurting me. But we also aren't loving anyone and we aren't covering, forgiving people of their sins. We aren't truly loving because we aren't really showing up in real life. We might not need to scale a building as we do it. But maybe when we extend love, when we even reconcile and forgive those who have wronged us, maybe we are scaling a pretty big building for some of us. But maybe it's the kind of thing we get to do so that God's love can enter into a situation and save someone from dangling from the balcony of shame. See, love leads us out. It calls us to open our lives, our home, everything we have to others. And so Peter goes on, verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So this is interesting today because we live in a world where there's a lot of hotels, a lot of motels, and everyone has credit cards. And there's other people to be hospitable. As far as we might be concerned, opening up our lives really isn't the norm. Our homes, our time, we can pretty much stay isolated, not show up, and people have lots of other avenues to manage without us. But when we don't show up, we miss what God has for us and for others. See, in this passage here, we're called to offer hospitality. Don't wait to be asked for it. Offer Show up, see a need, and offer hospitality without grumbling. You know, it's really easy to prioritize what we want to enjoy rather than to reach out to a real person. And, and our individualism can really tend to self-indulge like the pagans of Peter, first Peter, uh, Peter's audience, even when we call ourselves Christians. So maybe we just need a bigger vision of what hospitality is. Here's what God tells us about how wonderful hospitality is. It's all throughout the scriptures. In Hebrews, he writes this, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And then Jesus says this. He says, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And when we invite one another in, in Matthew 25 again, it says that the least of us, anyone who does this for the least of these, my children, is welcoming Christ. Like, wow, what opportunity. Doug Webster puts it really well. He says, the measure of our openness to others reveals our intimacy with the one who said, come to me. I think he's right. It can help reveal whether we're really in touch with our Savior, with the new reality of God's kingdom or not. See, hospitality is an opportunity, not an imposition. And it's part of how God calls us to reflect the reality of Christ's lordship in our lives. And it flows into the third and last way Peter calls us to show up. Let's read, starting in verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Wow. 
there is this phenomenon in Japan called hikikomori. I hope I, wrote, hope I said that right. And it refers to people who haven't participated in society or shown a desire to for at least a year. They rely on their parents to take care of them. In 2016, the Japanese government census put the figure at 540,000 people aged 15 to 39. And that's just the one who showed up to be counted for the census. Could be more. But here's the thing. This isn't just limited to Japan. People all over the world are shutting themselves out of real life and choosing to live their entire lives in their home, playing video games, surfing social media, watching TV all over the world. Now, what's at stake here? There's so much at stake. You know, sometimes people retreat inward because they have this sense of dissatisfaction with real life. And Hudson Taylor, he had a good word for that. He said, the real secret to an unsatisfied life too often is, an, is found in an unsurrendered will. So that's one of the questions for us. Will we surrender our will to God? Will we come into the real world and live for him and use the gift God's given us? Because we are called and gifted by God to serve one another. If we're followers of Jesus, we're called to use whatever gift we have received, in the verse that we read, to serve others. And to not show up and do that is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Brant Hansen, commenting on the painful reality that so many are tucked away, like the Hikikomori phenomenon, puts it well. He says, the hurting world and hurting communities need us to solve real-world problems, protect real-world people, and fight real-world injustice. Actually, he puts it this way, the hurting world and your hurting community needs you to solve real-world problems, protect real-world people, and fight real-world injustice. Please don't waste your God-given desire for adventure and accomplishment by being a fake hero fighting fake injustices in fake worlds. Join me in reality. You know, COVID may have exacerbated this kind of isolation, but it's time to show up. The reality of the world and the reality of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God is calling out to all believers to show up, to see the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ. And to let it go deep and stretch us. For God's love to be constant in our head, heart, and hands. See, God equips us with gifts to show up with. Theologian Ed Clowney put it really well. He says, it's the love of God that brings us to our brothers and sisters' feet. It's the grace of God that fills our basin for service. We've got something to serve others with. Given, we have been given gifts by God, not for our self-fulfillment or to establish our own identity, but to serve God and others in his name. Uh, maybe you don't know what gift you have. Maybe you're like, well, I don't really know what I've got. Well, gifts are discovered in service. You've been called to steward them well. There's this story that Jesus tells about a few people who were given different amounts of talents, really some means, and told to invest them while the master was away. And the first two invested them, and they were given and put in charge of a whole lot more. When they got back, the master saw that they had invested the gifts they were given and was so happy. He's like, you get to share in your master's happiness. But the third person didn't do anything with it. He just buried it in a hole. And Jesus says to that guy that what he's been given is going to be taken away, and he doesn't get to share in his master's happiness. 
See, you won't gain the answer to how God has gifted you by introspection or by staying in your room. You won't live according to God's will and share in your master's happiness if you do that. Come and serve. The church needs every member to properly function as the body of Christ. And here at Summit, there are so many ways to serve. So many needs here. I guarantee you, you will be a great blessing if you just show up ready to serve, ready to serve God from a heart committed to doing his will. Now, there's this old joke that when someone says to you, you have a servant's heart, it means they want you to start stacking chairs. But having a servant's heart doesn't mean that you are just some pushover. It means you recognize that God has given you a heart for others, an opportunity to show up, a heart that wants to see God glorified. One of my professors, he, he was planning a church, and a man showed up and was like, I'm here and I am ready to preach. He was adamant. My professor didn't know this guy. And so he said, well, it's great you'd like to serve. Can you start by helping to stack chairs? And the guy didn't stick around because it wasn't about serving God and that community. It was about his own glory. And so I encourage everyone in this room today to show up in your church and your community to serve with the gifts God has given you for God. And as you serve, look at what Peter says about it. This is encouraging, I think. Verse 11. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. See, the speaking gifts, Peter says, they're about speaking God's word to others, not your own. The serving gifts, these are to be done for God's glory, and not by your own strength, by God's strength. See, sometimes when we look at things about being about us and our recognition, we start carrying this big weight on our shoulders, like we need to do it. We can get burnt out or, or prideful. And sometimes there is this pressure. But in a community where we are all engaged in serving the body, everyone, it's not for our own sake or for our own glory. It's for God's. And we can rest because it's God's work. And we can show up and serve from sincere hearts because we're strengthened by God to do so. Maybe ask yourself, if I were to get involved in one of the ways that God has gifted me, how could I make sure I serve in God's strength and not just my own? But show up. Show up in community. Get into the new reality of your life in Christ and show up because God has gifted you to serve. It's what you were made for. Ephesians, Paul talking, speaks to the Ephesians and he says that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Awesome. Like, he has gifted everyone for service and it will bring glory to him. To not show up is a tragedy and everybody, yourself included, misses out when you don't. Peter ends by giving us the result of our living for God's will. Why should we be people who live for the will of God with the end in mind, with alertness, love, and great service? So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. One day we're going to die and our glory will be gone. But not God's. It will last. The things that we do here on earth will last. They will reverberate into eternity. Each of us has one life with many opportunities to give ourselves for something very real in this moment, for such a time as this. And we have a God who showed up in the real world, in real space and time, and died for us so that we could come to God. His love stepped 
into the muck and mire of life. And it stretched all the way. His arm stretched all the way out onto the cross for us so that we could be with him. And he still, he rose again and he still intercedes for us. And he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And he's given us talents and gifts to use for him. Given by God. Valued by God. Just as we're valued by God and called by God. And Jesus says that those who are faithful with the gifts entrusted to them, they will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what I want to hear when I come face to face with God. And I pray that all of us might want that because we love God and each other more than the things of this world. So let's turn away from living for the dopamine hits of our modern world because the end is near and God has given us great gifts to pour into the reality of our hurting world with. Will you show up? Where is God calling you to show up? What are those gifts, the varied gifts of God's grace that he's equipped you with to serve his people? And again, will you show up? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you are coming back. And we can take, be encouraged by that and convicted by that. God, we pray that the love that you pour into our hearts, that love which stretched out on the cross and died for us, would be so, that we would love it, love you so much that it would be so, we'd be so full of your love, God, that we would allow ourselves to be stretched as well. That we would live in this real world to care for real people who are really hurting, to solve real life problems by your strength, God. Not by our own and not for our own glory, but for your glory, which will last into eternity until our dying breath. May we do that, God, we pray. Amen.